This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, everyone. This is Chad. Welcome once again on your product mastery journey. Today, our guest is sharing the steps for successful digital transformation. And his name is Howard Tiersky. And he's the author of a Wall Street Journal bestselling book titled Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irreverence. And we'll talk through some of that in just a moment. He founded a group called From. Uh, might ask him about the name there, From. It's a digital transformation agency, which has won over 100 awards for user experience design, including including for the work of redesigning the Avis app, which is now ranked by J.D. Powers as number one in the industry. So some pretty good credibility there. As always, we take detailed notes for you as we are going through this discussion. And you can find those detailed notes at productmasterynow.com slash 362. There will also be a one-page action guide there for you to put into action the concepts that we're talking about make it a little bit more clear what some key takeaways might be that you can immediately put into action for yourself. So again, that's productmasterynow.com slash 362. Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Chad. Great to be here. So, you know, this digital transformation word gets used a lot, and I think we have some general notion of, okay, we're moving from paper to something that is is on the computer or, or on phones or apps or things. But I'm sure there's many different connotations and experiences with this. Can you kind of just get us grounded and tell us what you mean by digital transformation? Sure. Well, I like to think of digital transformation kind of in two in two spheres. There's the outer sphere, which is the digital transformation of the world. And perhaps even more importantly for a business, the digital transformation of the customer. And what I mean by that is your, whatever business you're in, whether it's B2C or B2B, your customer is living an increasingly digital lifestyle. The, the, the mobile phone and other digital touch points is now central to almost everything we do in our daily lives, from work to socializing to eating to communicating with our friends. You know, it's highly likely that there's an app for that. And that some between some digital touch point or another, it's a key part of how we engage in that particular behavior. And that's a big change. You know, I remember 15 years ago seeing the early iPhones before you could even create an app for the iPhones. And of course, even at that time, we were using computers and all that. But there really has been a big shift in the world over the last couple of decades to this extremely digitally centric world. And it's increasing, continues to increase. And of course, COVID has accelerated that further as well. And so we have this change, which, you know, no one business is going to be able to do anything about. This is the current of the world moving towards being an increasingly digital customer lifestyle. So that's the outer level of digital transformation. I think you have to start there. Usually when people talk about digital transformation, they're talking about at a company. My company needs to go through some kind of digital transformation. And the way that I would define that really is as a starting point, it's to make sure that you remain relevant to the now digitally centric customer. This is why I called my book Winning Digital Customers. Some people ask me, well, what's a digital customer? And the answer is exactly what I'm saying now. It's people who have a transformed way of living, who are living that digital lifestyle. And if you want to win that customer, then you need to be caught up to the transformation of the world because that otherwise you become, well, potentially irrelevant. And that's why the second part of the title of my book is The Antidote to Irrelevance. 
Excellent. That's a good explanation of the title as well. And, you know, we're, we're living at a time where we have our first digital natives, right? People who have been raised only around technology instead of having the precursor like you and I uh, and others that have, have seen the transition to technology. And it'll be interesting how, how just the, kind of the world evolves with them being more immersed in digital tools. I, I like that you talked here about the organizations that are thinking about the digital transformation, making the digital transformation, that the key need that there is to remain relevant to their customers that are adopting these digital tools as well. I wonder if you can take us through an example that you have seen of a company making a digital transformation. Sure, absolutely. And one of the things that I notice when I work with large enterprises is that there can sometimes be this mindset that the only companies that are doing well at this are the Facebooks, the Googles, Netflix, mm. Airbnb, all of these digitally born companies. Because of course, we have digitally native consumers, as you say, and then we have digitally native companies. And sometimes it seems like it's a lot easier for them because they don't necessarily have to go through that kind of transformation. They were built that way from the ground up. But there's a lot of companies today that were great, let's call them legacy brands, analog brands, brands that were born before this digital uh, world that we live in. Let's talk about Starbucks, for example. Starbucks has done a fantastic job of integrating the mobile phone and the mobile phone lifestyle into the you know, order remotely. You can pick it up. You obviously don't have to wait for your beverage to be prepared. You can pay with your phone. The, the, the consumer living the digital lifestyle feels very, very comfortable with Starbucks. Another quick service uh, restaurant that's really taken this even to another level is Taco Bell. And at Taco Bell, one of the things they're doing, which I think is a really great characterization of the breath that's required for true digital transformation is they are remodeling their restaurants so that they have two separate drive-through lanes. One, the traditional drive-through lane, where if you want to drive up and say, hmm, what should I have? Maybe a burrito. What's the difference between a burrito and an you know, empanada or whatever? You know? And then they make your food and all that, right? Traditional drive-through experience. And then the other lane is for the people who've already ordered on the app, have already received a notification that their food is ready, have already paid, and all they have to do is drive up and get their food. And of course, we don't want them waiting in line behind somebody who's ordering food to be prepared at that time. So this is the, what I mean when I say meeting the needs of the digital customer. It's not all about the app. In this case, you know, we talk about sometimes digital versus brick and mortar. This is literally changing the brick and mortar of a restaurant to knock out a bunch of bricks and create a new drive through window to meet the needs of the customer of the digital life cycle, so uh, the digital lifestyle. So there's just a couple of examples. I mean, we can go on and on about other companies. I mean, look at Walmart, for example. Walmart, a classic pre-digital company for sure, is now the number two online retailer in the United States. So clearly they're doing many, many things well from making their digital, uh, making their inventory available digitally to having a fantastic order online pickup in the store experience to massively expanding the number of SKUs they can carry to creating a marketplace for independent sellers and on and on and on. So that's the great news is that we, we've proved that the legacy companies can catch up and can compete toe to toe with digitally native companies. That's excellent. As we're talking about organizational change, this is a great time for us to talk about our sponsor of this program, too. That's called a Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. And just take a listen to this introduction to the RPM Experience. This is a quick break to thank you for listening. And I'd like to recommend some recommendations for improving your product capability and helping your organization generate greater revenue. Whether you're a product manager or you lead product managers, you're going to find these recommendations helpful. They're based on insights I've learned after working with several organizations, helping them improve by using my Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or RPM Experience. 
The report contains 10 recommendations. The first one is worth getting the report all by itself, and you can put it into practice in only five minutes. I've shared it many times recently. For example, when a leader from Dell Computers asked what they can do to create a more innovation-oriented culture, the first recommendation was what they needed to change. Also, when a startup founder was struggling with conveying their value proposition, once again, the first recommendation showed him how to reframe the way they present the work. Further, when a product manager with several years of experience was finding interviewing for a new job with another company to be kind of challenging, the first recommendation showed him how to best position his experience for any opportunity. All that from only one recommendation. Now to get it and nine others in my report that's titled 10 Changes Product Teams Should Make Now to Consistently Launch Products Customers Love, simply go to productmasterynow.com love. That's L-O-V-E, love. Because the recommendations will help you better create products customers love. Don't miss out on what other product managers, leaders, and innovators are already benefiting from. Go to productmasterynow.com love. It's worth a minute it will take you to do that and not miss out on what others are already putting into action. Howard, thanks for those examples. I'd like to get into some of the content from the book because you provide this framework for helping an organization make digital transformation. And as part of this, you share this five-step process for doing so, mm-hmm. but it begins with understanding your customer. And that's really speaking the language to product managers. At least I hope product managers recognize that that's a key thing that we need to do is understand our customer and the problems we're having and how we can provide value for them. And so, you know, we can direct listeners to all the framework in your book for sure. I wanted to pull out a few key points that I think are probably more relevant for product managers. And one is step two, where you talk about taking understanding the customer through a mapping the customer journey process. Can you talk through that with us? Absolutely. So customer journey mapping, I believe to be like the foundation in many ways of digital transformation. And customer research needs to be the foundation of customer journey mapping. But just to talk about customer journey mapping as a standalone thing, the first sort of key idea I think that's important to think about with customer journey mapping is a lot of people are always enthusiastic to map the future vision of what the customer journey should be. And of course, this is the customer journey map, which is something that really shows the North Star of what would be the customer journey in whatever domain your business is in, whether it's roof roof repair or accounting or a restaurant or whatever, what would be the ultimate journey or series of journeys that takes the customer from becoming aware of you to starting to learn more about your products or services to engaging with you, buying from you, experiencing your product or service, hopefully over a long period of time, coming back, buying again, referring their friends. And obviously those journeys are a little bit different depending on what kind of industry you're in. And really getting specific about what kind of experience will will meet the needs of today's digital customers, will differentiate you from your competitors, and will create the kind of customer love, which I talk about in the book, as being such a valuable business asset. I think, though, that one of the biggest, most important things that needs to be addressed with journey mapping, and one of the areas that I see a lot of companies not do the best way, is to start with the current state journey. So often we're so enthusiastic about envisioning the future. And I believe me, I share that enthusiasm. But you really first have to ask the question, what's happening right now for the customer? And that kind of dovetails with customer research, of course. But the key is it's not just to understand the customer, but to understand what really happens when that customer 
comes to your store or your gas station or calls your call center or whatever else. Not the conceptual idea of what's supposed to happen, but what literally really happens and what are all the challenges and problems and where are the places, first of all, where are the things that are great? Where are the places that we're really killing it, where we're delighting the customer, where our employees are doing a fantastic job? Those aspects of the experience today, which are differentiating and which we wanna make sure we don't lose. But then perhaps even more importantly, most businesses, no matter how well they're doing, have many points in the journey where they're confusing their customers, angering, disappointing, frustrating, and probably losing business and probably not optimizing the kind of brand impact, brand loyalty that they really desire to get. And so really being rigorous about starting there and being honest about what that current journey is and then you can use that as a, as a basis to say, all right, well, if I'm going to start creating my future journey, I probably want to start by, to some degree, copy-pasting the parts that are working great. We don't want to lose those. And then really, instead of just generally thinking about, you know, like, oh, there could be drones and virtual reality and, you know, how do we use AI? Instead of starting there, start from the question of where's the customer suffering? Where's the customer in pain? Where's the customer confused, et cetera? Where's the customer not in the very best possible emotional state? when they're going through that journey. And all of us, no doubt, have experiences all day long with our banks, with our insurance companies, with stores, with you know all kinds of, where we are definitely not in a positive emotional state the entire time. How do we find those? And then the new journey becomes an answer to a different question. It's not a question of how can we apply all kinds of cool stuff to the customer journey, but rather how can we make it better based on where we have points that the customer's emotional state is not what we want it to be. Excellent. Yeah. So I, I like the emphasis there of we start with what the customer is doing now and we understand kind of their buying behavior, their buying approach, how they're trying to solve this problem, what, what they've looked at before. And we're intercepting that in a way that creates more value for them and connects to their problem and can lead them in a path that they would expect, right? Instead of, as you started to say in the beginning of this explanation, if we start with what we believe is to be the optimal path for them to go down, we may very well be in a position where we're having to retrain them to think the way we, which just adds friction, right? Yeah. That, that, that's not what we're trying to do. And you talked about you know places where we might be, the customer might be confused. And what can we do about that? And there's also those opportunities to add little elements that are surprisingly really small at times that add delight to the customer that we can just interject and really make the experience so much better for them. Absolutely. Sometimes you discover things that are real points of pain for the customer that are solvable with just a better sign, right? Mm -hmm. In the store, right? Mm -hmm. A clearer message on the receipt. Of course, you know, digital transformation, sadly, is not all about just doing little things and you can get to nirvana. But hey, when you're doing the study and you discover that here are some things that are easily fixable with a new a new policy, a new kind of training to provide employees or what, ha what have you. I mean, this is the, this is really gold, you know, when yeah. you find these kind of, if you think about the old quadrant approach to laying out, prioritizing things, the things that are actually easy and high impact. And I tell you, I've never gone into a company where we do this kind of analysis and we don't come back with at least a few of those. Mm. And those are the, the, you know, like those are the, that's, that's pure gold. Then of course, what you find is there are other things that would be really valuable to do, but they're not so easy. You know, you need a new commerce system to do that. You need to change your CRM. You need to re massively rethink the way you engage with your customers or what have you. And those may be very worthwhile to do, but they can be time consuming. So it's great to know those quick things because when you're doing these types of projects, very often you've got stakeholders and they're not always that patient. 
and you want to figure out what are those quick hits? What is that low hanging fruit that you can get started with? And frankly, the customers are often not that patient. If you're a brand that is a digital laggard, if you're not delivering an elegant and outstanding digital experience, you need to at least show them you're making progress or they're going to start to lose faith and look for somebody who seems to value digital the way that they do. Yeah, absolutely. In this process of exploring the existing customer journey, we're also not suggesting that we're, you know, in the digital transformation, we're not just moving from what might have been a paper or, or physical in-person experience and putting that into an, an app per se or some combination of digital experiences. This is an opportunity to make everything better, right? To understand what the customer is actually trying to achieve and make a better experience in the process of doing this work. You're right. I mean, we work with all kinds of clients that are at different stages of, shall we say, digitization. But most of the time when I'm working on projects, at least over the last few years, it's less about paper to digital and more about an earlier generation digital experience mm. that needs to be made more elegant, more modern, more in keeping with the expectation of today's customers. But hey, yeah. you know, there are other things too. You know, a lot of paper has been removed from the world in the last, you know, decade. But there are still so many analog things that we do. Like, why are people still standing in line? That's just stupid. You know, I mean, I don't mean to be so judgmental, but like, it just seems to me that like 15 years from now, nobody should ever stand in line. Like, that's just totally unnecessary today. And that's just one example of, you know, I think there's a lot of things like that that aren't necessarily even about paper, but they're about analog behaviors that we've become complacent about that we're not even thinking about. And part of the opportunity of future journey mapping is not just to address those things that customers are complaining about, for example, but hey, we have an opportunity to remove something that's causing the user effort, that's causing the customer time. Mm. If we can remove that, you know, Uber did a fantastic job of this. Not only did they make it much easier to call a, a taxi, loosely speaking, some kind of ground transportation, but now I, when I get in, I don't have to spend time telling the driver where I'm going. They've saved me that effort. When I arrive, I don't have to spend the time paying the driver. They've saved me that effort. So all of these little bits of effort, and no one of which is, you know, enough time to read a book. <laughs> it's just a little sliver of time. But customer people love that. You know, when you're saving people little bits of time, that really creates delight. And I think that's the kind of thing you want to be looking for. As you mentioned, sometimes the way you create delight, one way I like to talk about it is, you know, one goal is to take away those things which are frustrating or annoying your customer. This removes their negative feelings towards your brand, or at least with respect to that issue. But when you find something that is taking the customer's time and effort that they don't blame you for, and you remove that, then you get delight. Yeah, you become a hero. Yeah, if we can save customers time and make things easier, more convenient, we're usually winning. So, thanks for talking through the customer journey mapping process some. Your step three towards building this future uh, state of digitization mm -hmm. is leveraging design thinking. Design thinking is a topic we've talked about some in past podcasts, but I'd love to hear you, you take us through how you're applying it. Absolutely. So huge um, users of design thinking and consumers of thought leadership around design thinking. I think design thinking was really a genius and critical innovation to all product development, digital and non-digital. The vast majority of the work that I do in my world are on digital products. And of course, there are many different flavors and varieties of design thinking, many different people who've contributed over the years to the, the, the methods and the approaches that make up this body of practices that we call design thinking. In our case, you know, we've, we've built our own uh, version of design thinking, our extensions. We, we've modified the process a little bit to work really well for the types of projects that we do. I guess I would start by saying, I think of design thinking 
as mainly sort of three key parts. And in the center is, is ideation. Ideation, of course, was not invented by design thinking. Ideation has been around for thousands and thousands of years, I'm sure. And when they built the pyramids, someone sat around and said, what shape should we make the pyramids? Let's come up with some ideas, right? So this is not a new idea to create ideas. But what, I, what design thinking did was it put a really important idea in front of it and said, you know, before you start coming up with ideas, hold, it, hold, hold the phone there, Pharaoh, you know, before you start inventing things, maybe you need to ask a key question, which, you know, who are your customers and what problem can you solve for them? And of course, this is the two pre-ideation activities in classic design thinking, which is empathy and define. Empathize with the customer and define the customer's problem. And it's along the lines of what we were talking about earlier as well. In, ma in, in journey mapping as well, making sure you understand the problem. And then of course, all right, now that you have that insight, go ahead and ideate, you know, let, let, let go. You can have fun now and come up with all your ideas. And then classically, the key post-ideation insight that design thinking brought us was to prototype and test. The idea of saying, just because you've come up with an idea that you think is awesome, you know, you may not, may not be right. And so what steps can you take to evaluate and test whether that is really the right idea before you invest in doing it on a full-blown basis? So to me, ultimately, and of course, even though it's five steps to traditional um, design thinking, to me, it's really what happened, the idea of prepare to ideate, then ideate, and then test those ideas before you bring them to market. So that's kind of, to me, design thinking at its core. And then in our work, we've really just added a couple of key ideas to design thinking, and I talk about this at length in the book. And you know, you could argue, I'm sure there are people that are doing design thinking that are also doing many of these different things. So I'm not suggesting these are unique, but they're not part of what you would kind of classically focus on as design thinking. The first is business outcomes. And so in the book, we have a diagram of classic design thinking, and we talk about that. And then we talk about the, these modifications or enhancements. And because, you know, I think some people in the product development space, for example, have used design thinking to say, you know, we're going to go into people's homes and observe them and empathize and try to understand without having any clear business outcome other than trying to understand the customer and learn about things. And that may be um, valid in some cases, but in our work, usually we have to start with some kind of business outcome. What are we trying to do? We're trying to increase the upsell. We're trying to reduce the call handling time. We're trying to increase the customer satisfaction. We're, we're targeting some specific outcome. So that's the first thing that we've modified. And I'm not gonna go through all the details of our diagram, but the other pre-ideation component that we focus on is understanding the market. Again, I think in classic design thinking, it focuses almost exclusively on the customer. But in reality, in order to deliver a successful product in the business world, you have to have a product that, that compares well in the marketplace, which means not only do you have to solve problems for customers, but you have to do it in a way that's superior to your competitors' products, or at least certainly superior to those competitors' products that are at your same price point. And so we've also added that as a key part of the pre-ideation. So you can really understand what do we need to be able to accomplish and what are we up against in the marketplace? And then ideation. And of course, in the book, I talk extensively about a lot of ideation techniques because design thinking doesn't necessarily in and of itself, the heart of design thinking provide the specifics around how do you actually generate these ideas. And we have a lot of different exercises and formats and things like that, that we've curated over the years, many of which we didn't invent. They're just things that we've used, things that we've learned, things that we've seen be successful. And we're trying to make a useful tool for folks to gather them together and say, hey, if you're in the ideate phase, here are 20 different ways that you can use to generate ideas to, to unlock human creativity. And then in the post-ideation phase, you know, the key component there is prioritization. 
And of course, classic design thinking has built into the ideate stage this idea of prioritizing based on uh, feasibility, desirability, and viability. And we do those things as well. And in addition, we have some other prioritization components, such as risk factors and confidence level, which I won't try to get into in detail now, but unless you want me to. But that, so we have a little bit of an expanded model there as well to focus on really ruthless prioritization to figure out, because usually if you're doing this process well, you're generating a massive number of ideas, and then you need a very strong method to get that down to the few that you really want to move forward because you can't prototype and test all of your ideas. And so those are some of the differences that we focus on or enhancements or whatever you want to call or nuances to design thinking that we expand upon in the book. Great. Thank you so much for going through that with us. Happy to. One last question for you. Just where do companies run into problems with digital transformation efforts? What is hard for them to get their hands around? Honestly, it's all hard. <laughs> there are so many, and I, I devote a couple chapters in my book to discussing many of the challenges, but I'll, I'll mention a few. First of all, they don't really understand the customer. And so therefore, they may be heading off in the wrong direction. Someone may be technology-driven and say, our digital transformation is all about our SAP upgrade. Well, Okay, that may be good technology, but to what degree, you know, you can transform in a way that's not improving your business. Just because you've changed doesn't mean you're going to get better. So that's the first thing is to have real clarity on the things we've been talking about and a, 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 a transformation that's driven by the customer. And by the way, I go into this again in depth in the book, but just to be clear, the reason to focus on the customer is not some sort of moral or ethical or philosophical reason because customers are, are what you should focus on. The reason is because that's who has the money. And so if you're talking to people, you know, in the C-suite who, you know, are very focused on delivering a business outcome, while it is true that it is much more inspiring to create products that improve people's lives rather than things that frustrate them. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. When you're talking to executives who are, you're asking for funding, for example, you need to be able to show why this isn't just a, a, a sort of a good idea or, or, a, or a sort of a motherhood and apple pie thing to do to, to focus on the customer, but rather success in business is heavily resulting from driving desired customers' behavior. If you can do that successfully, you're probably running a great business, even if a bunch of things are screwed up. But if you can successfully drive your customers' behavior, you're probably set up for success. And if you are not, able to successfully drive the behaviors you need from your customers, then it probably doesn't matter much if you've got like the world's best finance and accounting system and you're, if your legal department is top notch and like all these other things, right? You've got the world's best fulfillment. If you're not meeting your customers' needs and driving their behavior, then you're probably out of business. And right. so this becomes to me the single most important thing for any business. And if you're going to transform, it better be because you're going to spend a lot of time and money doing it. And that to, for that investment to be worthwhile, it better be driven by something that's going to that's grounded in improving a customer experience and driving customer behavior. So that's one, and maybe I'll mention one more, and then tell me if you want more or, or if it depressed you enough. But certainly, and often there's not a clear strategy, right? Everyone might then agree, great, we need to transform, but specifically, what are we going to do? And you, sometimes you have infighting, or just you have general resistance to change. You know, I think the the biggest challenge in digital transformation is never technology; it's always people. And getting an organization, and you know, people, most people are wired with a natural, I think, evolutionary DNA rooted resistance to large scale change. It's like, you know, I got my gig going here. I've got my people that report to me. I've got my bonus structure. Like, don't upend the apple cart. The problem is the apple cart is about to be replaced by the apple vending machine. And so if you don't upend the apple cart, 
you won't be selling any apples from your apple cart. But still, even with that information, just like you know any other kind of fear, because the biggest the biggest human resistance to transformation within organizations is fear. And yeah, I mean, for example, I don't know if you've ever gone on like a Royal Caribbean cruise ship where they have those rock walls. Have you ever done that by any chance? Not yet, but I've seen the pictures. You've seen the pictures, right? So you're on this cruise ship and you're on the open deck and there's one of those rock walls, you know, with the little multicolored handles and you're supposed to climb up. I don't know how high is it? I don't know, 25, 35 feet and ring the bell at the top. Now you're in a harness, you're strapped in, nothing bad can happen to you. And yet, damn, is that scary. And I've, you know, I, I got to confess, I got halfway up and I'm like, take me down. <laughs> I don't do this. <laughs> this is not fun. I'm on vacation, you know? And, but the point is, even when your mind intellectually knows this is the right thing to do, I want to ring that bell. There's people down there rooting for me. I don't want to let them down. And there's nothing bad that can happen to me. Sometimes natural fears kick in, like the fear of heights, and, and you're, you won't let yourself do it. And I think that that same fear of change, while maybe not as strong as the fear of heights, holds a lot of people back. And so there's many things, and I go into great detail in the book about how to inspire people, how to lay out a path for success, how to bring people on board, how to make people feel aligned with what you're doing, how to make them feel more comfortable. And for those people that will never be comfortable with the change, how to go to war with them. Because if you think you're going to get everyone on board with your transformation, you're kidding yourself. You want to get as many allies as you can. And then, and I hate to be, say it this way because it's not what I prefer to do, but you're probably going to have to go to war with some people to get transformation done at your organization. So know that it's coming, be prepared for it, and don't, don't shy from it when it happens because otherwise they're going to get the better of you because they feel that their lives are threatened by the transformation that you're proposing. Right. Yeah, there is that political aspect to any change inside an organization. And you need to find your supporters and your allies and ways that you can sideline your distractors and blockers. Well said. I enjoyed as you talk through the climbing wall, because in my mind, I am building this customer journey that you were on with this climbing wall experience and thinking, oh, where could we insert something to make this more comfortable for you earlier in the process so you know you could be successful and would have to worry about, about the danger factor here, the fear. Zone. So that, that stuck with me from what you're talking about before. As listeners know, I love a, a good innovation quote we all do around here. What do you have for us and what does that mean to you? Sure. So going back to what I said before about digital transformation, and being the, the change in the world and the change within your company. I'm inspired by Jack Welch's quote from the 80s, and most people know Jack Welch. He was the legendary CEO of General Electric who turned the company around and I think 10x their stock price over 10 years or something like that. And But this was a quote from back in the 80s. And at the time, he said, when the change, when the pace of change on the outside exceeds the pace of change on the inside, the end is near. A rather gloomy quote. But when I say that quote at most companies that I'm working with, large enterprises, you get a lot of nods because everyone in large companies today feels that the pace of change on the outside, which has accelerated so much, is almost always exceeding the pace of change on the inside. So according to Jack Welsh, anyway, who's a guy we should listen to, this is an existential problem. And that's mm -hmm. why innovation is so essential. Design thinking and agile methods and all these things are so essential because it's not just about transforming, but about doing it at a pace that will keep up with the market. Right, because there are outside factors with competitors, customers' preferences, and other regulatory and other issues. The business environment is always changing, and we do have to keep up or we become dinosaurs. Thanks so much for sharing all the information with us. How can people find out about the work that you do and about this book that we talked about? Absolutely. Well, first of all, if you're interested in the book, again, it's called Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. It's a roadmap 
for companies to undergo digital transformation and talks at length about specific techniques for customer research, journey mapping, design thinking, getting an organization, essentially leadership around digital transformation, and even how to find those small quick wins that can help get confidence in your transformation while you work on the bigger visionary stuff. The book's available pretty much anywhere that you'd buy books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera, et cetera. There's also a website dedicated for the book. You can go there. The URL is winningdigitalcustomers.com, all one word, no spaces or any other funny characters, winningdigitalcustomers.com. And if you go there, you can actually download the first chapter for free if you want to check it out before you, before you invest in the book. Um, if you're interested in learning more about my company, which is a, a combination of a digital agency and a consulting practice, the company is called From, the Digital Transformation Agency, and our website is at the URL from.digital. It's a good URL, from.digital. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Howard, thank you so much for being here. Listeners, as we talked about in the very beginning, we write detailed show notes for you, and you can find those at productmasterynow.com slash 362, and that one-page action guide to help you put into action some of the key concepts that Howard shared with us. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.